Don't people like eat cicadas? Uh, I think I saw that on Twitter. Wait, what? Oh yeah, they're like delicacies. Or so. Oh, there's like some way you could cook them. I mean, they're protein. Interesting. So, you know. Yeah, look, insects. <laughs> it'll solve food insecurity worldwide. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I hope everyone had a nice Memorial Day weekend. The 2022 midterms are about a year and a half away, but the primaries are already less than a year away in a dozen states. And the field of candidates lining up to compete for their party's nomination is growing in key races. Handfuls of Democrats are vying to replace retiring Republican senators in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Same goes for Republicans eager to replace Senator Rob Portman in Ohio and those trying to oust Liz Cheney in Wyoming. Today, we're going to take a look at how some of the most competitive primaries are shaping up. We also have two, count them, two good or bad uses of polling today. One poll suggesting that QAnon is now as popular as some major religions in the U.S., We're also going to return to one of our favorite uses of polling with some new updates. I should also mention there is currently construction going on in the apartment above me. That's one of the consequences of work from home these days. So if you hear loud noises throughout this podcast, I apologize. We will try to keep them to a minimum. Oh, there we go. In any case, here with me to do all of this are politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Howdy, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So before we dive into any of the topics that I just mentioned, Alex, things got a little messy in the legislature of your home state of Texas over the weekend. What happened? So there was a sweeping overhaul of Texas's elections and voter access that was poised from the beginning of the legislative session to pass. It had the backing of Republicans and it had support from the governor. But Democrats, of course, opposed the bill, but Democrats in Texas are outnumbered. So on Sunday night, there was about an hour left for the legislature to give final approval to the bill. And Democrats staged a walkout, which prevented a vote on the legislation before the midnight deadline. So their leaving left the House without a quorum, which requires two-thirds of the 150 members to be present when taking a vote. So they had this walkout. Um, Of course, Republicans were not happy. Greg Abbott even threatened to defund the legislature and to take away members' pay if they weren't going to vote on this bill. And it's very likely lawmakers will be called back for a special session to address this bill. There's also a bail reform bill that failed. And of course, there's redistricting. So I would not be surprised if there's a special session here in the next few weeks or days where lawmakers are called back and expected to get this passed. So what happens then? Is it clear that this bill, as it currently stands, is just going to end up passing, but at a different time? Do Democrats plan on trying to take any other actions to prevent it from being passed? Democrats haven't said what their plans are for the special session. I think one of the big problems with the bill that was on the floor Sunday was that it was negotiated behind closed doors for weeks because the House and Senate couldn't agree on their versions of the bill. And so when the Senate bill was on the House floor on Sunday, it came back with a series of additional voting rule changes that weren't part of previous debates on the bill. Like there was a provision including new ID requirements for voting by mail and restrictions on Sunday early voting hours, et cetera, that Democrats didn't get a say in. And I think they wanted to spend more time debating and maybe seeing if the chamber would spend some time negotiating parts of the bill. But because there was this midnight deadline looming over everyone, there really wasn't time to negotiate it. So Republicans just wanted to push through the bill as is. Democrats didn't want that. I think in a special session, the same bill will likely come back. I don't know if the bill is going to look 100% worse for Democrats, because I, I doubt any Republicans now are really going to want to compromise and negotiate. There really hasn't been any plan laid out by Democrats for what they're going to do when they're brought back for a very inevitable special session. Okay, so we will keep our eyes on what happens in Texas going forward. But for now, let's move on and talk about our two good use or bad use of polling examples that we have for today, and you all get a choice. So there's one more serious and one less serious example for today. Would you like 
the more or less serious use of pulling first. Less serious? Yeah, let's go with less serious to start. Okay, I like how you're thinking. So for this use of pulling, we're going to return briefly to the topic of human versus animal fights, which I know, Sarah and Jeffrey, we talked about previously on this podcast. We talked about it at another point on this podcast as well. This has now spanned multiple episodes and multiple weeks. But YouGov released a new poll since the last time we discussed it, showing how British respondents rated their ability to fight a slew of different animals. So now we can compare that previous poll, which asked Americans, to the British poll. Jeff and Sarah, I know that you're familiar with this poll. Alex, are you familiar with the American version of this poll? Familiar with the American version, yes. Okay, so I have not shared this poll with you in advance. Usually I do with these good or bad users of polling so you can get a sense of what the poll dug into. For this example, I'm going to ask you to guess uh, if you think that Brits or Americans are more confident in their ability to fight wild animals. I would say Americans would probably feel they're more confident. You know, that's where my mind goes, Alex, but I also kind of wonder, just given like the Rudyard Kipling-esque British lifestyle, colonialism. Like, maybe there's some false sense of bravado there, too. So I'm going to say British. I bet they had a stronger sense. Okay, we have one American, one British. Jeffrey? I think I'll go with Americans here. I always have a sense that we have a particular a particular confidence, whether earned or not. So I'm going to go with Americans. Okay, so Americans is the correct answer. Ah. <sighs> Damn. Americans are more confident than Brits when it comes to fighting every single animal that they asked about. So from a rat to a grizzly bear, Americans are just more confident. When it comes to the middle section, some of the things that we talked about on this podcast before, like a goose, a medium-sized dog, or an eagle, Americans are far more confident than Brits. So when it comes to a goose, 45% of Brits said they felt confident in a fight against a goose, 61% of Americans. And as we've talked about previously on this podcast as well, according to a biologist who wrote into the show, Americans are correct on this one. When it comes to human versus geese fighting, humans will win. Medium-sized dog, 38% of Brits felt confident, 49% of Americans. When it comes to an eagle, it was 18% of Brits and 30% of Americans. So that's the answer. I have another question for you guys. Do you think that the gender gap persisted among Brits? So the first time we talked about this, it was in the context of American men being far more confident in their fighting ability against animals than American women. Yeah, I'd assume there's a gender gap as well with British men more confident, maybe not as confident as American men, but confident. I'm pretty sure that there's a gender gap in voting generally in the United Kingdom as well. So my guess is that there's also a gender gap here. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm grasping at straws here, but I'm going to guess that there is still something of a gender gap in this as well. I'm going to go the other way. I feel like there's probably less of a gender gap. I just feel like the Brits will probably be completely different from what Americans said here. So maybe there's no gender gap. Sarah and Jeff, you said that you think there's still a gender gap. Do you think the gender gap is larger or smaller? I'd have to assume like roughly the same in the sense of like, I feel like this poll is showing us that in addition to gender and how we think about animals and fighting, there's also something about American exceptionalism at play here as well. But I'm guessing that the gender is going to be like somewhat consistent. Well, the fact that you're asking this question makes me think that one has to be larger or smaller. So I'm going to go with smaller. Okay. So you and Alex are on the same page. Yeah. I mean, a smaller gender gap, but I do think that there's still one. Okay. It turns out that the gender gap is significantly larger. So while British men are about equally as likely as American men, for example, to say that they could beat a rat or a house cat, so it's like 76% of British men, 77% of American men, they're about the same. British women are substantially less likely to say so compared to American women. So 57% of British women say that they could beat a rat, whereas 68% of American women, and then 58% of British women say they could beat a cat, and 64% of American women. 
So it turns out that the gender gap is significantly larger in the UK, which is the opposite of what you guys thought. So does that mean that the overall lower United Kingdom scoring in terms of the percentage saying that they could defeat an animal is largely due to British women being less likely to say they could? And so are British men more closely aligned with where American men are? No. So that is a great question. Actually, I was going to ask this as a follow-up question, but I think you now probably know the answer. When it comes to things like lion and grizzly bear, American women are significantly likelier to say that they could beat a lion or a grizzly bear than British men. So American women are more confident in their ability to fight some of the fiercer wild animals than British men. There you go. See, the obnoxious Americans aren't just men. It's women, too. There you go. But trying to make this serious or draw some kind of lesson from this momentarily, what does this teach you about the two different cultures, this kind of comparative polling? And is this kind of comparative polling a good or bad use of polling? Like, can you just take a survey and ask those questions kind of across the globe and then compare them all? Or do you have to do certain things to make the survey more meaningful when you transfer it to a different country? Well, one follow-up question. Do we know the timing? Was this given to British respondents after the viral American survey? Yes, it was. Ooh, that's a really good point, Sarah. But you have to think, like, how many people are truly online being like, ooh, a YouGov poll that asked Americans if they could fight grizzly bear? Like, what is the likelihood that they reached a British respondent who had, like, seen the poll and, like, been in the Twitter conversation? That's fair. That's fair. I feel like it was big on journalism Twitter. People were gabbing. So I'm sure people across the pond saw that. But um, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I guess Sarah points out that it's possible that British respondents, or at least a handful of them might have been thinking about this a little more seriously because they had seen some coverage of the, the previous poll of Americans. And so we're actually like, hmm, could I actually really defeat a goose, you know, uh, instead of just maybe being a little bit less serious about their responses? I like the comparative aspect, though. I'm curious, Alex, Jeffrey, for what you guys think. But, I mean, it does seem to underscore, you know, we talk a lot about American exceptionalism, individualism in the U.S., and this poll kind of underscores that to some extent, right? I think so. I mean, looking over these answers over the weekend, it was just kind of like, really? (laughs) So just like the confidence of some people to be able to fight these animals head on kind of speaks to that American exceptionalism. I think at the end of the day, this is a a good use of polling and the comparative aspect is good. It's sort of an amusing way to investigate differences across countries. You know, I'd be curious if they ran this in some other countries and you could get sort of a full comparison. I mean, you see pollsters like Pew Research Center doing cross-national polls of attitudes in different countries about different issues to make comparisons. So this is sort of an amusing version of that, but nonetheless, it does say something about a society. Right. And how gender gaps were persistent. I thought that was interesting. That was my like suspicion going into this and granted one poll, but interesting how that is true of different cultures as well or not. Okay. We will leave it there for now for human versus animal polling. If YouGov decides to poll any other countries, maybe we will come back to this. Let's move on and talk about that QAnon poll that I mentioned at the top. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Our second good use or bad use of polling question comes from a listener named Jordan. So Jordan saw a write-up of a public religion research institute poll in the New York Times titled QAnon Now as Popular in U.S. as Some Major Religions, poll suggests. This poll asked about agreement with three statements to come to the conclusion that 15% of Americans believe in QAnon. So the first statement was, the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. 
are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. That was the first statement that they asked whether or not people agreed with. The second statement, there is a storm coming soon that will sweep away the elites in power and restore the rightful leaders. Then the third statement that they asked about was, because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. Now, this is Jordan's question. Jordan says, the New York Times was pretty credulous in its coverage. It seems to me that in recent years, many poll questions are viewed through a prism of Trump support and answered by respondents accordingly. Is that what is happening here? Or is there more QAnon belief slash sympathy out there than I realize? So essentially, Jordan is really just asking, is this a good or bad use of polling? So asking respondents about these three statements and then coming to the conclusion that about 15% of Americans believe in QAnon Is that good polling? I think in terms of actually figuring out what share of the American public actually believes in the QAnon conspiracy, this isn't a good use of polling. And I want to be careful here. I want to be nuanced. Ooh, it's a bad use of polling. Yes. I I think it's a bad use of polling for determining the percentage who actually believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory. Because I think it's important to identify the thing itself And the fact of the matter is that a lot of other polls have shown a much smaller percentage saying something like, I have a favorable view of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And a lot of people don't even are like unaware. I mean, I do understand though, and this is what I wanted to say, is that I do think it's a good poll in terms of trying to get at these threads that form an important part of the conspiracy theory and understanding what share of Americans might believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory or might be vulnerable to being sucked in by it. I think that's important. But I think if you're trying to figure out what percentage of people actually believe in the QAnon conspiracy theory, this doesn't necessarily tell you that. It just tells you what share might believe. Because just because someone believes in one particular part of this or even all three parts of the the questions they asked doesn't mean that they're like, I'm a follower of QAnon. Some of them clearly are, but that doesn't mean all of them are. Yeah, I also leaned heavily toward bad because I don't think any survey studying QAnon can really replace the work that's needed to know how many QAnon members, supporters there really are. Like there's no formal QAnon organization to ask people for membership numbers. It's basically an online forum where people can come and go as they please. So I think the poll had good intentions, but I think it's bad in the sense that We can't rely on one survey or poll to provide the entire picture of public sentiment toward the movement. So I actually thought it was a good use of polling. And Mm. here's why. So there have been a number of polls on Q and on since before the election and after. And as Jeff was saying, you know, a number of polls have shown a drop in support for QAnon, particularly because a number of the things that were supposed to happen haven't, right? That said, what the overall numbers, the 15% to 20% on some of the three questions they asked, was similar to what other polls have said and found. For instance, the American Enterprise Institute also had a poll earlier this year that asked about QAnon without mentioning QAnon specifically, it said Donald Trump has been secretly fighting a group of child sex traffickers that include prominent Democrats and Hollywood elites. And 15% said that was true, which is kind of similar to what PRRI found. I hear the criticisms that it's really hard to then derive from this poll, okay, here is the body of people in America who believe in QAnon. But I think what we see in this poll and what we've seen in previous polls, you know, Morning Consult had also done a poll earlier this year that, again, showed since October less people believed in QAnon. But still, like this 15% to 20% more Republicans than Democrats or independents, it's pointing towards, I think, a small minority, but a sizable one, 15% to 20% in poll after poll saying, hey, I believe some aspects of QAnon. And I think some of the questions too had enough like Q drops, if you will, that if you were plugged into the conspiracy, you would know that it was about QAnon. I think the last question was a little more vague and I probably have some quibbles there, but I thought this was a good proxy for understanding support for QAnon. I think what Sarah's saying is is fair. Again, I like the poll and the questions they asked, but I think the top line takeaway that 15% of Americans are QAnon supporters. I mean, especially the way the headline for the New York Times connects it to like, as popular as some major religions. 
I think the fact that someone said in a poll that they believe a certain aspect of QAnon does not necessarily mean that they are a, a supporter and a follower of QAnon. I think actually showing that is more difficult. And I think people have like a religious fervor or, you know, they have certain religious beliefs or, you know, belong to certain denominations or what have you. That's a little different than having answered a poll and then trying to say that that makes it comparable to like religious affiliation. It's just like kind of a nuance here where the questions are valuable and the answers that PRRI got are valuable to understanding maybe the potential growth and the potential like realm of support for QAnon and and things that QAnon advocates and avows. But there's like a connection here that's missing, which is that are all those people actually followers of QAnon? And this poll can't tell you that. And that's important, I think, for fully understanding how big or not big QAnon is. I feel like there could be a world in which a respondent or several respondents believe in maybe one or two of these statements, but they're not avid supporters of QAnon at large. I mean, is it only people who answered yes to all three things that they said, okay, these people are pro QAnon? Or is it like if you said you supported two out of the three things, what does that mean there? So I can see a world in which people believe in an abstract sense, one of these things could be true but again, aren't necessarily devoted QAnon followers. I think it's interesting, like, you both are hitting on this idea of like, are these people dedicated QAnon followers, right? And like, we can't measure intent in a poll or the steadfastness of this belief, right? And some of it could be partisan cheerleading. I'm primed in such a way that I hear, you know, do I want the elites out of Washington? I'm kind of conservative leaning, sure, yes. That said, though, I mean, the fact that poll after poll is keeping in this like 15% to 20% finding suggests to me that we can't dismiss this, that there is a serious section of the population that is at least sympathetic to what the QAnon conspiracy theory stands for. I think, though, as Jeff was saying, too, you know, that the New York Times headline around it was kind of rough math in the sense of like, Roughly a quarter of the country is evangelical. Roughly a quarter support Q. And we can't deny that there is a relationship between those two, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I do think that probably conflated it and was a little bit more sensational. But, you know, in the last year, there have been a number of stories just with the pandemic, how that's affected church. People are going to church online. Q is an online phenomenon. And it has taken root in Christian life, particularly evangelical Christian life in this country. And I think polls are just underscoring that it's not going anywhere. So I want to point out here that the way that the New York Times framed this is significantly different, at least at the start, from how the Public Religion Research Institute framed it themselves. So again, that New York Times title is QAnon now as popular in U.S. as some major religions poll suggests. PRI takes pains to lay out what exactly the questions that they were asking. They do break down people who believe all three versus people who believe just one or two. They basically break down respondents into QAnon believers, QAnon doubters, and QAnon rejects. So QAnon doubters might be people who have some sense that one of these might be true. And to the point that a lot of you brought up, the statement that they asked people whether or not they agreed with, there is a storm coming soon that will sweep away the elites in power and restore the rightful leaders. I mean, in some ways, you could see that as wishful populist thinking that doesn't necessarily apply to QAnon conspiracy theorists. And you see that there's bipartisan, really, kind of support for that statement. It's 28% of Republican respondents, 18% of independents, and 14% of Democrats for a total of 20% of Americans believing that statement. And again, I think probably some people would say that storm is literal, and some people might say that that storm is abstract, but you could have some abstract sense that the people will rise up, there will be a storm, elites will be swept out of power. Like in some ways, could that just be seen as wishful populist thinking and not really QAnon? No, I think that's a totally valid point. It gets at the difficulty of this. And, and I actually want to be clear that I think I was more critical of the framing of how some of the media was covering this than necessarily the poll itself. I think the poll was trying to do what a lot of polls do, which is 
you're trying to ask people about something without directly asking about it, because if you directly ask about it, that may affect how they respond. And that may in the end not even tell you anything. So, you know, for instance, political scientists have surveys where they they try to gauge like a voter's racial resentment, but they don't ask you, are you racist? Mm -hmm. Because someone's clearly going to say no. So you ask them questions that surround the issue, but are not smack dab on that word. They ask about other things to try to get at that. So I think in the same way, this is trying to get at a QAnon support threshold, if you will, or, or something like that. So I don't think it's necessarily about who supports QAnon, but who might support QAnon, who could support QAnon, who supports things that are related to QAnon. So I guess in that sense, it's like it is a good use of polling for that point. And I think to Sarah's point, there's like value from that. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, Galen, in the sense that the question, particularly the second and the third, the third's phrasing is that because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. That to me seemed less Q-specific and more so if we glean XY from the first two questions, does this kind of indicate what the willingness or desire for violence is among Q supporters? But even that second question as you were getting at, there is a storm coming. Is that a literal storm? Because that is in this QAnon mythology. But it also could be somebody who's just unhappy with political elites. And that's something that's true of Republicans who aren't Q supporters. But again, I think I just returned to like the top lines of this poll in terms of the support they're finding roughly match what other pollsters have found. And like, you know, Morning Consult did specifically ask about QAnon. And it was, I think, 18% in March who said, despite what they'd heard, they believe X, Y, and Z with QAnon. And so I just think this is really pointing to a real trend in American culture. Maybe this is a dumb question, but it breaks the respondents down here by partisan affiliation. You know, that second statement that I mentioned there's a 10-point gap, which is the smallest gap amongst the questions that they asked. There's a larger gap for whether or not American patriots may have to resort to violence. So that's 28% of Republicans, 13% of independents, 7% of Democrats. And then the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. I assume that's the one that's most specifically related to QAnon. That's 23% of Republicans, 14% of independents, 8% of Democrats. The potentially dumb question that I had is, why do we see so many more Republicans supporting these statements? We've talked about conspiracy theories on the past on this podcast. And in general, conspiracy theories are not a partisan issue. Different parties have different conspiracy theories that they may subscribe to. But conspiracy theories are a human thing, not really a party-based thing. So what's going on here with the Republican support? I mean, I think you can kind of connect it to a couple things. For one, is that we know one group of Americans that is more likely to support this are evangelical Christians, and evangelical Christians are more likely to be Republican. Therefore, you see a larger share of Republicans who who support this because a big chunk of the party is made up of people who are just more likely to believe this sort of thing. And then I think you also, along with that, the fact that QAnon is very tied into former President Trump and the idea of He's going to bring this storm, take down elites, all these various conspiracy theories regarding the presidential election in 2020, and then all sorts of other wild conspiracy theories like Joe Biden is like not even real, like there's like somebody impersonating him, or that Trump was going to become president in March because that used to be the inauguration date back in the day. Like there's all these various conspiracy theories that are associated with QAnon and are very much tied to Trump. And of course, Republicans are tied, very tied to Trump, as we've seen in poll after poll, are very supportive of the president. So I, I think those are two clear factors, evangelicals and Trump support. And on the evangelical support, one thing that stood out to me in that is that polls have shown, it was actually another PRI poll from 2017, but it was asking about discrimination in the U.S. and who Americans thought were discriminated against. And two of the religious groups they looked at were Muslim Americans and then Christian Americans. And on the whole, most Americans thought that Muslim Americans were more discriminated against than Christians. The exception to that was evangelical Christians. And so if part of the Republican political strategy is this politics of grievance, and you have a section of the base who thinks that they are persecuted for their religious beliefs, and Q Anon inserts religious passages from the Bible all the time in terms of like drops to followers, 
it makes sense then that this held special appeal for this part of the Republican base in the sense that the message is, we're the true believers, we see things for what they really are, and we have to then fight back as these true believers. I mean, on top of that, I think the rise of these far-right news channels like Newsmax, One America News Networks, has led to just a massive amount of disinformation. And in his last year or so in office, Trump would pretty regularly call out Fox News for their lack of total fealty to him. So his supporters went elsewhere, like these other news networks. And, you know, maybe that worked for Trump, but I feel like these networks have helped stoke these conspiracy theories. And now there's a valid fear of possible future violence from QAnon followers and others who believe in these statements. But yeah, I mean, to your original point, Galen, we know that conspiracy theories and belief in them isn't something that's unique to Republicans. Like Democrats believe in conspiracy theories too. The reason why I think QAnon holds special appeal for Republicans is this idea of, A, there's explicit biblical appeals. Republicans tend to have more of a religious base than Democrats. And then B, building on that, there is this idea of persecution embedded in it and like whiteness tied to that. And I think what we are seeing and saw with the insurrection on January 6th, you know, is just, it's the Proud Boys, it's QAnon supporters, it's white nationalists all coming together under one big messy umbrella. And instead of things being more defined or lanes, it's all merging into this messy, angry, suspicious distrust of institutions and QAnon kind of fits within that. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, one of the ways that the New York Times framed this as we wrap up here, they said, overlaying the share of poll respondents who expressed belief in its core principles over the country's total population, that's more than 30 million people. They're calculating 15% of the American public. Is that how we should think of this poll? Like, there are 30 million people who believe at least some tenets of QAnon and believe that even maybe violence might be necessary in order to cure the country of what quote unquote ails it. This is kind of the, the smarmy textbook answer, but like we can't poll every individual in the country, right? Like what the New York Times did in that metric isn't wrong to me. Would it be better if they had averaged multiple polls together that asked about QAnon support? Yes. But, you know, as I've said today, like this one does fall in line with where other polls have fallen on this question. So extrapolating it out, even though that number sounds really large, I don't think is disingenuous on their end. I think what needs more research was something that Alex was hitting up at the top of this, which is just like, what does this support actually look like? How ingrained is it? It's one thing to say, like, I want the elites out of Washington. It's another thing to say, I support violence going in to take out political leaders I disagree with. That said, though, this weekend, there was a huge QAnon conference in Dallas, Texas, and former security advisor Michael Flynn was calling for a coup. And people attended that. It sounds so fantastical and surreal, I think, given the orbits in which we move daily, but I don't think we can discount this growing animosity and distrust in the U.S. and how it's manifesting in this way, and part of that being violence. Yeah, I mean, I think you saw on January 6th, I mean, there was an assault on the U.S. Capitol by many people who clearly were like QAnon supporters were a part of that. Um, Were they all QAnon supporters? No, but they certainly formed part of it. And one of the things that came out of January 6th was all this coverage of QAnon, especially by a lot of mainstream outlets that maybe had not covered it as much before because there were all these just very clear connections. And so I think having seen that happen on January 6th, you can see like the potential danger of this, but also to gather enough people to do that at the U.S. Capitol and for there to be fear going forward to the point that, you know, they've had security or they ramped up security for a while afterward and kept up lots of barriers and other things um, because there was concern about further problems because of things like QAnon. I guess with that in mind, it's like the idea that there are a lot of people out there who might support violence in association with politics is scary, but also having seen what happened on January 6th and the aftermath of that makes sense, sadly. Yeah, 
The part about violence was probably the least surprising part of the poll to me, just because there have been polls previously saying that Americans, Republicans, and Democrats increasingly believe violence is justified if the other side wins. So there were a few researchers, including Lee Drutman, who's a 538 contributor. He was part of a Politico op-ed last year, and some of the top lines they found were among Americans who identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's political goals, which was a substantial increase over the last three years. And they also found in September, 44% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats said there would be at least a little justification for violence if the other party's nominee won the election. It's bleak, man. Yeah. Um, well, you guys asked for the for the more serious uh, good use of polling or bad use of polling second, and uh, that's what we got. But let us move on and talk about something else, and that is the primary contests that are starting to fill out for 2022. But first... People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The 2022 midterms are still a year and a half away, but the primaries in at least a dozen states are less than a year away. Side note, those primaries might move because of really delayed census data, and they might not have districts drawn up in time in order for those primaries to take place. We're still waiting to see whether or not that happens. But if the calendar holds, there are a dozen states that will have already held primaries at this time next year, and we will be next year in 2022 in the middle of primary season at this point in the calendar. And so I asked all of you to look into some of the key primary races, most competitive primary races that we're seeing shape up so far. And so each of you, Alex, Sarah, and Jeff, took some time looking into some of the most competitive ones, ones that may have a particularly interesting dynamic within the two parties. And we're going to do a little bit of a round robin. And you will be educating me as well as our listeners, because I have not tracked all of the people who have jumped into some of these primary races around the country. But Jeff, why don't you kick us off and you can rank them here. So what you think is the most interesting or notable primary race of 2022 so far? Oh boy, the one house race that I think we're going to talk about today because most districts have to be redrawn, right? So there are a handful of states that only have one congressional district, so they won't be redrawn. And I think what I can say is that one of the most, if not the most interesting house primaries will be the Wyoming at-large seat, uh, which Liz Cheney currently holds, and her attempt to hold on to that seat, which because Wyoming is so very, very Republican, will come down to winning the Republican primary in all likelihood. Uh, and so Liz Cheney, at least for now, says she's going to be seeking re-election, and she's gotten a ton of pushback from Republicans in her state. She's been censured by the, the state party. More than half of the county GOP committees have censured or criticized her formally. And obviously, Republicans in Washington just removed her from House leadership. So things haven't been going too great for her. And she's pretty clearly under threat, could lose. And so you still have this figure in Cheney, who's sort of an anti-Trump figure, who has become more of one than she was, I think, before the election. But she's become very much this anti-Trump figure within the Republican Party, which isn't a terribly popular position nationally at the moment. And so a bunch of people have already declared they're going to run against her in Wyoming. But what's interesting here is that because there are a lot of candidates who have announced that they're going to take her on in the Republican primary, they're actually creating the possibility that she might be able to survive, despite the fact that she's been very critical of Trump and that that could threaten her at the end of the day if her opposition can really consolidate. But at the end of the day, Cheney's going to have a ton of money. She's already got a lot of money, which will help her to some extent in the campaign. But there's no runoff rule in Wyoming. You know, she doesn't have to get a majority of the primary vote to survive. So let's say she has four or five opponents. If she gets like 35%, that might be enough to win renomination and then go to the general election and probably win there. 
So I just say in terms of her opponents at the moment, there's really no clear standout figure. And so that's an important part of that opposition not having consolidated. And based on reporting about the Wyoming race, it looks like a lot of people who support Trump or people who are in Trump's orbit are looking for that person, for the former president to support and for them to consolidate behind. And that person just isn't there yet. But I would say that you have sort of a a list of candidates who've come in None of them are terribly impressive in terms of their potential to to beat Cheney. Maybe they could one-on-one, but not with this more crowded field. But at least one has gained notoriety for very wrong reasons, and that's a state senator named Anthony Bouchard, who is very conservative. And he recently, I think to get ahead of the story, that this is the kind of story that getting ahead of it probably doesn't do much for you. He acknowledged impregnating a 14-year-old girl when he was 18, so it's a bit in the past now, And then they got married when she was 15 and he was 19, which was legal at the time. This was in Florida. Uh, It was legal in Florida at the time. It's no longer legal. That law has been repealed. But anyway, she gave birth to a son and then later killed herself at the age of 20. So very terrible story here involving this guy who's one of the more well-known challengers at the moment. So I'm getting the sense that he may not end up being the individual that Trump and his allies sort of rally behind if they're able to do that at all. So we'll have to see how things develop. But I think that's like the House race that's really interesting because we know what the district's going to look like. And that's rare at this point for most of the House. And it obviously involves this leading anti-Trump figure in Cheney. So you have maybe one of the most sort of pro-Trump, anti-Trump vibes within that primary. Yeah. Just to be clear, I feel like that is going to be the theme of today. Trump isn't on the ballot in 2022, but he kind of is. Like this whole primary system is going to be based on loyalty, fealty to him. You know, each year we've been tracking endorsements and that's been looking at endorsements from Justice Democrats or who Bernie Sanders endorses in addition to Trump endorsements. And I'm super curious to see what that turns out for the 2022 election here. Yeah, Jeff, that was a very detailed overview of what's going on in Wyoming. I honestly don't have any any questions. I mean, I have questions, but like they'll be answered with time, maybe not <laughs> things that can be answered right now. What I was trying to say is that it's the it's almost like the most extreme version of the anti-Trump versus sort of pro-Trump. I think what you get a lot of in these other races is just how pro-Trump are you? You know, you're pro-Trump, but are you super pro-Trump? Are you supercharged pro-Trump? That's sort of the, like, I think the dynamic in most of the other races. Whereas in this one, you have Cheney is a much more clearly anti-Trump figure at this point in time. Right. The Wyoming race is almost a caricature that is convenient for the media, but not even necessarily representative of the debate within the party. Because, like, the party has kind of resolved that debate to some extent. It's largely pro-Trump. And it'll be gradients of pro-Trumpness instead of uh, someone who's voted to impeach Trump versus people who totally love Trump. So yes, that dynamic we'll be tracking throughout this. But Sarah, why don't you take us to our next primary race that you'll be watching? So in terms of the races I dug into, I think the one that has the most like stage setting elements for attacks we're going to see in 2022, maybe recycled in 2024 and tweaked, is the Florida Senate race. So in that case, Marco Rubio, he's up again. He won handily in 2016, eight-point margin. And despite his rancorous relationship with Trump in the 2016 primary, being little Marco and whatnot from the former president, Trump's already endorsed him. He has since rebuilt his reputation and career as less of a moderate and more as I want to take on cancel culture, fight for you. Ron DeSantis is going to be at the top of the ticket as well. And so in Florida, you know, the last time in 2018, we really had a serious fight there between Democrats and Republicans was when former Senator Bill Nelson was up. He then lost to Rick Scott. And of course, then Andrew Gillum faced DeSantis. That was a super close race. Andrew Gillum ran as a progressive, um, still narrowly lost to DeSantis, though. And so Val Demings, um, she has not officially entered the race. But if she does on the Democratic side, that's kind of been looked at as a super high profile get. She also, as the former police chief officer in Orlando, brings law enforcement credentials to the ticket. And I think 
We saw this play out a little bit in Philadelphia just recently um, with their election and the progressive there won, but defund the police and that rhetoric is something that Republicans are trying to make a big issue here in 2022. And I think Demings can speak to her background as in law enforcement, but then also taking steps to reform police while she was a police officer and those being successful, like violent crime in Orlando decreased under her tenure. She has that in her background, was willing to try new things. Also running as a black woman in Florida energized a lot of the base in Orlando and can activate a big network there to try to take on Rubio. That said, we don't have any polls right now of the Senate race. We know that Rubio is generally favored or has an above water approval rating, but it's only around 50%. So it does suggest that there is appetite for someone to take him on in Florida. The question is, you know, is Florida still a sweet state? Since 2008, it's steadily inched back towards the right. But as we saw in 2018, it was a close race with Democrats. I think a lot will depend on who the governor nominee will be for Democrats in Florida. But provided Demings runs and she seems to be indicating that she will, it poses, I think, one of the most interesting challenges to a sitting Republican incumbent. I think it'll still be tough, and the polls suggest that at this point, but it should be an interesting race. But are you basically saying here that when it comes to the primary, though, like Marco Rubio has moved in a more Trumpy direction, preventing himself from getting a primary challenger, and that Val Demings would loom large enough that she would block anyone else from really getting into the Democratic primary? That's right. So to be clear, like, I think Democrats, they've kind of been behind the scenes negotiating who's going to run and where they're going to run, particularly because they also need to fill the governor's slot. So like Steph Murray, she'd been tossed around a lot as running for the Senate here. She decided, nope, I'm actually going to seek re-election in my district. It seems as if support is kind of coalescing behind Demings, but, you know, there could be another candidate there. Voters don't like it when, you know, there's not a healthy competition. It does seem, though, as if Democrats are trying to rally behind one candidate here in the Senate race, more so, I thought, than the gubernatorial. And then, right, Rubio at this point doesn't really face a a serious challenger. Trump's already endorsed him. And as we know, Trump doesn't like to lose. So he often will hold off in making endorsements unless he's really confident that candidate will win. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it doesn't seem like there's much coalescing on the Florida Democratic gubernatorial primary side. There's a lot of people who yeah. are running for that race, including the you know former governor of Florida, Charlie Crist. So we'll see what happens here. I know, Jeff, you've been tracking that a little. Does it seem like former Florida governor kind of boxes out the rest or is this going to be a real competitive challenge? The gubernatorial primary on the Democratic side in Florida is shaping up to be notably more competitive than the Senate primary. And that comes down in part to the fact that you have at least a couple notable candidates that that are running or are about to be running. Charlie Crist, as we said, former governor, but Republican governor, was elected as a Republican and then later switched to the Democrats and is now a Democratic representative in the House, is seeking the governorship. And he's expected to oppose, at the very least, Nikki Freed, who is the commissioner of agriculture in Florida and has been shaping up a run for a while. And given some of the way that Freed has portrayed herself, I think she's going to be trying to run to Chris's left, which might be smart given that in a primary, you know, it's going to be a more liberal electorate, comparatively speaking, than a general electorate, of course. Uh, And Chris as a former Republican, just comes with sort of a a moderate bearing no matter what positions he's taken since he switched to the Democratic Party, whereas Freed can run a bit to his left more as a progressive. I think the early conventional wisdom is that Christ has an edge there, but Freed might be able to overtake him in the end. And obviously, we're a long way from Florida's primary. As scheduled, it should happen in August (laughs) of next year. So a lot of time for things to change. Yeah. All right, Alex, what do you have your eyes on in terms of competitive primaries of note? I can start with Georgia. So obviously the state itself is becoming more competitive, evidenced by Ossoff and Warnock's wins earlier this year, but the primaries themselves are going to be fun. So on the Republican side, you have Brian Kemp fighting for his second term in what maybe should have been an easy feat for him, but he lost the support of some Republicans particularly those on his right flank after he didn't embrace Trump's 
unfounded claims about widespread election fraud in last year's elections. So now he has a couple of primary challengers, including Vernon Jones. He is a former Democratic state lawmaker turned Republican, and he is one of Trump's most vocal allies in Georgia, and also educator Candace Taylor. So those are some of the opponents that he has. You know, what's working in Kemp's favor beyond his incumbency is the fact that he did sign a very far-ranging election measure that includes new restrictions on voting by mail and greater legislative control over how elections are run. To be clear, I don't think Trump is placated by this, but Republicans in the state have rallied around the measure and internal polls show Kemp's approval rating with conservatives is ticking back up again. There hasn't been too much movement on the Democratic side because I think everyone is just waiting to see if Stacey Abrams enters the race. She ended her 2018 campaign, I believe, without conceding defeat. And I think folks see her running against Kemp in 2022 as her very likely next step. Right now, I just think the Republican side is the more interesting one to watch. Because I think if Abrams did enter the race, I don't see her getting many, if any, primary challengers. And Trump has yet to endorse in this race. I don't know if he will, but I assume if he does, he would not endorse Kemp just based on the back and forth that the two of them had last year and everything like that. So I'd be interested to see if he endorses someone like Vernon Jones, former Democrat, or if he just stays out of this race completely. Do we know the likelihood that Stacey Abrams gets into this race at this point? Is there any behind-the-scenes reporting on her intentions? There have been a few, like, Georgia Democratic political operatives who are, like, 100% sure, like, this is her next move. But I also have seen reports that I think she just came out with a book. She has some sort of contract where she's going on, like, a book tour. She's expected to have more novels coming out and everything like that. So I can't say for certainty that she's going to run. I think the general sense is that she will. And people close to her seem to think that's her next step. Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if she did. And I mean, I don't think the Democratic field right now is there's no really like notable candidates or any one so far. So I think a lot of people are just hoping that she runs. Yeah. Okay, well, let's do one more round of notable primaries. And then I know that there are more and we'll just save them for another day. So Jeff, what else do you have your eyes on? So the Senate race in Missouri, um, is an open seat because two-term Republican Senator Roy Blunt is retiring. So because Missouri is pretty Republican-leaning, you know, Trump won it by about 15 points in 2020. It's been kind of uh, Republicans racing into it, or at least positioning themselves to run, or at least about to announce that they're about to run, because they know if they win the primary, they're probably going to get elected senator. And so really the most notable name and someone who is definitely trying to attach himself to Trump or even behaving in a Trump-esque fashion is former Governor Eric Greitens. Greitens was governor, but he was elected in 2016, but he resigned in 2018, uh, well before his term was up, because of allegations over sexual misconduct and campaign finance violations. Uh, He was facing a very possible impeachment by the Republican-controlled state legislature, And some of the sexual misconduct allegations are pretty bad in terms of he may have physically abused the woman he was having an affair with. He threatened to blackmail her if she said anything about the affair because he had taken a picture of her in like a compromising sexual position or something. It was just very ugly. But Greitens has claimed this was a a political witch hunt. He's very much come out since launching his campaign with that sort of language and very much tying himself to Trump. And I think his attitude is probably if Trump could run for president successfully, despite having a laundry list of ugly allegations against him, maybe I can get back into the political arena as well, despite what's happened to me. And he's actually led the limited polling we've seen so far, the Republican primary race there. But that may come down to name recognition, the fact that he was a former governor in large part. And I think Democrats are hoping that Greitens gets the nomination because they might see it as about the only way that they could make the race competitive. But again, I I think there's a good chance that regardless of who Republicans end up nominating there, that it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to win. But Republicans also don't want to have to spend money on this race. They've got other seats to defend that should be just a baseline more in danger. You know, states like Pennsylvania, for instance, or North Carolina. 
So I think Republicans would very much prefer Greitens to not get the nomination because then they don't have to waste time or money or have to defend him as a candidate. So maybe not their favorite alternative is another guy who's running named Mark McCloskey. And you may have heard about Mark McCloskey because he and his wife gained a lot of notoriety or infamy in 2020 when a Black Lives Matter protest marched through their neighborhood and they came out and brandished weapons at the marchers in their St. Louis home. And so that got a ton of coverage. McCloskey and his wife like appeared at the Republican National Convention in 2020. He announced his candidacy on Tucker Carlson's show. I mean, it's, it's very much a I'm a big Second Amendment supporter and a Trump supporter. You should vote for me. So don't really know where that campaign is going to go, but it's obviously gained a lot of attention. Probably the candidate who has more typical bona fides as a candidate is uh, Attorney General Eric Schmidt, Attorney General of the state of Missouri, uh, is also running. And he was actually one of the 17 Republican attorneys general to sign on to a far-fetched lawsuit to overturn the 2020 election result. Uh, And he even actually, his office took the lead on the Supreme Court brief that they filed, that the people supporting that filed. So that's sort of his notoriety. And then the other name at the moment that I think there's an expectation is going to run is conservative representative Vicki Hartzler, who's in the House. Um, It's also possible that Jason Smith, another Republican representative in the House from Missouri, could run. He was actually up in New York recently seeing Trump about a possible endorsement, which might determine whether or not he gets into the race. To be clear, both Hartzler and Smith voted to reject the electoral votes on January 6th in the House. So this is sort of this crazy crowded field, potentially. And I think Democrats are hoping that Greitens ends up winning the nomination. But Trump carried the state easily. Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator, couldn't win re-election there in 2018 despite the blue wave. And now with a Democratic president in the White House and the midterm environment probably not being as favorable for Democrats as it was in 2018, of course, it's really hard to see Republicans losing that seat. But it could be a pretty crazy primary. Yeah, that sounds like it'll be a wild ride. So we'll have to check back in on how things progress there. All right, let's close it out here. Sarah and Alex, what are your final primary races that you're watching? So I think the other big one for me that I looked into was the Ohio Senate race with Rob Portman retiring. You've seen half a dozen or more Republicans either come out and say, I am running or they're considering a bid. At this point, there is the lone Democrat, Tim Ryan, who you might remember from the 2020 primary. His bid seems as if it will be, you know, try to appeal to blue collar working class voters, try to do what Biden did. Um, But as we saw, Biden didn't do that well in Ohio. Trump still won by eight points. So it's very much seen, I think, as kind of which Republican is going to win the nomination. And there's a lot of activity there. So in terms of who's running at this point, we have Josh Mandel, who's a former state treasurer. He actually ran against Sherrod Brown previously and lost that race. He has good name recognition. And according to some internal polling that the AP had access to, it seemed as if he was also leading in the field. But Jane Timken, she's a former state GOP chair. She raised money for Trump. She also was in a position where she ousted a party chair who had been loyal to former Governor John Kasich, who has been a very public Trump critic and supporter of Biden in the 2020 election. And then there's a few businessmen to kind of round it out with J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, considering a run. (laughs) He's not officially thrown his hat in the ring. And actually what I thought was really interesting with him is the media writ large kind of jumped on the speculation that he would be running. He's a divisive figure in the sense that he first wrote a book that was kind of sympathetic to rural Appalachia and Trump supporters and voters and people wanted to understand that culture. He has since taken more of a cancel culture stance on shows like Tucker Carlson. He has become more supportive and vocal of Trump than he had been previously. But one thing I thought was really interesting was from a pollster public policy polling back in March, they looked at head-to-head matchups. And J.P. Vance, over 70% of respondents didn't have an opinion of him, whereas Ryan, like 46% weren't sure. Timken was also high, 64% didn't have an opinion. But Mandel, who's kind of to the extent that there's a front runner, maybe him, only 39% weren't sure. So I thought that was interesting. Like J.D. Vance, he's not in the race yet, 
but it also seems as if not a lot of people have a specific opinion of him. So given his national profile, which I guess is not panning out in Ohio in polls, there could be a opportunity for him to really make some inroads. And in terms of like the ideological fights we're going to see, like Josh Mandel in some ways was kind of like a pro-Trumpy character before Trump really arrived on the scene. In 2012, PolitiFact called him out for, you know, having a casual relationship with the truth. And then back in 2009, when he ran, he painted his opponent, a Black Democrat, Kevin Boyce, as a Muslim, and he wasn't. And this was in a TV ad and then in flyers that went out to voters. And he handily won that election in his race for state treasurer. So nobody's courting at this point Portman's endorsement, nor are they courting Governor DeWine, who's kind of an interesting bipartisan figure. So Ohio's moving to the red. It seems as if the primary fight is going to be here over how Trumpy to be. One candidate is passing out a scorecard that shows how Trumpy they are. But Ohio itself hasn't been in the red column all that long. You know, Obama did win it in 2008 and 12. It has shifted since then. But it's possible, you know, Portman said this when asked about the race, that maybe we'll see more distance from Trump as we get closer to 22. But at this point, we're not. And so I think it's a case study again, as many of the case studies we'll see in 22, about like how much does being close to the former president help or hurt you? That sounds like wishful thinking from Portman, who I don't think is a particularly big fan of the former president. And no one wants his endorsement. Which is sort of telling, right? I mean, I think that's a little wishful thinking. And looking at that race, I saw that Jane Temkin, who you mentioned, she would seemingly be like really pro-Trump. And and I think she is pro-Trump in many ways, but this is getting, getting into those gradients. I saw a story that she had been criticized when she was still state party chair in January for not condemning Anthony Gonzalez, who is a, a member of the House from Ohio, a Republican, for not condemning him quickly enough for his vote to impeach Trump. He was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. So I think that's just an example of like, how pro-Trump do you have to be in order to meet expectations within the party base? Yeah. All right. Take us home here, Alex. What is the last race that you're watching? And I should say here, there are lots of other ones, as I already mentioned. There's some crazy stuff going on in Idaho. There's maybe a competitive primary is going to happen in North Carolina. There are governor's races and so on. Arkansas could be interesting with Trump's former press secretary. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So we're going to talk about this again. But for now, for time's sake, take us home. Okay. So Pennsylvania Senate is what I'll be talking about. Very short backstory here, Pat Toomey not seeking re-election. So there is a number of Democrats and Republicans surveying the field to replace him. And an open U.S. Senate seat is pretty rare and a pretty coveted position, one, because senators usually don't retire like Toomey is and because a Senate term lasts six years. Democrats are fresh off of Biden's victory over Trump in Pennsylvania, so I think they see the seat as probably a very likely or most likely bet for a Senate seat to flip from red to blue. So the primary field on both sides still in flux, but on the GOP side, Republicans recently picked up a new candidate, Army veteran Sean Parnell. He ran for Congress last year, came up short in his race against Connor Lamb, who, by the way, might also run for this seat. I think there are some whispers of that. But even in a state that went for Biden, Trump loyalty is a very salient factor in this primary. So Donald Trump Jr. has endorsed Parnell. And I think the other big GOP name to watch right now is Jeff Bartos. He's a wealthy businessman, has already loaned his campaign hundreds of thousands of dollars and was very quick to invoke Trump in his announcement video. I think for the sake of this segment, though, it might be safe to say that Parnell may occupy a Trumpier lane than Bartos. Democratic feels also very crowded. Probably the name folks have heard the most is Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. He's running for the seat. He's by far the biggest fundraiser. On top of that, we have State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who I believe was a prominent surrogate for Biden and Biden's presidential campaign. There's also Montgomery County Commissioner Val Arkush. And then on top of that, just a handful of other state and federal elected officials looking at this race. I think Republicans like their odds against Fetterman the best. I mean, he's pretty progressive. And 
again, he's the biggest fundraiser so far. But the list of candidates wanting to replace Toomey may keep growing. So I would probably expect plenty of drama in this race well before the general election. Yeah, because this is one of the races where there is a long list of Democrats running. What kind of cleavages are we seeing in terms of what is on offer for Democrats in the primary? So the two, I would say, leading Democrats, Fetterman and Kenyatta, are approaching the early stages of the primary by voicing support for several progressive-leading platforms. Both support raising the minimum wage to $15. Both support ending the filibuster, for example. But, I mean, they're running in a battleground state where Biden's moderate platform just barely won the presidency. And last year, Democrats fell short in virtually every other major 2020 political area. So I don't know if that strategy will hold, but that seems to be what they're doing primary-wise. And on the Republican side, it's the same except running to the right and seeing if you can get Trump's endorsement. Yeah. All right. Well, any closing thoughts here as we wrap up talking about 2022 primaries for now? Just that there's a long way to go. You know, I think the first primaries will be in March, assuming they aren't delayed because of redistricting, as you said before. So we're still a long way away from from knowing just what some of these candidate fields are going to look like. It does seem as though like the Republican side's a little more clear cut in terms of like what the biggest animating question is, right? Like just how close to Trump are you going to be? Yeah. All right. Well, we will keep tracking that over the coming months, but let's leave it there for now. So thank you, Jeff, Alex, and Sarah. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Galen. Thank you. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.